0: there's a link in the show notes, or if you're an Instagram user, just message me, Three Steps. That's the number three, S-T-E-P-S, and I'll send you that link. Let today be the day you get started. This is David Smith, the producer of Measure Twice, Cut Once. We had a few audio hiccups this week, but I'm hoping that you'll forgive them, as this was an amazing interview and we'd hate to have to redo it and wait the time it would take to do that. So without further ado, here is Susan Smith and Bethan Namash. You know,
1: you can go to any museum painting and, and you can look at, you know, a Monet painting and just be like, oh, look at the beautiful things. Um, but when you know his history of his depression and his suicidality... And then you began to see the shadows in in the work. And and yeah, all, all artists that way. I do think of myself as an artist who happens to have chosen quilting as my thing.
0: Welcome to Measure Twice, Cut Once, the podcast where we hear quilters and other crafters' stories and draw encouragement and even life lessons from them. I'm your host, Susan Smith, and I'm coming to you from my quilting studio, Stitched by Susan. This is where my long arm, Lucy, and I spend lots of hours doing freehand, edge-to-edge quilting. And if you're not a quilter and those terms mean nothing to you, it's basically doodling on the surface of a quilt with a 50-pound writing utensil with needle and thread attached at high speed. And if you are a machine quilter, I invite you to tune in to the live and unscripted events that I host on my YouTube channel, also called Stitched by Susan. They're on the first and third Friday of every month. And they are usually one project from start to finish, in real time, and they're streamed live, so they're interactive, meaning you can ask questions and get answers about a project while I'm working on it. So I invite you to join me there again the first and third Friday of every month. The quilting community, as I'm sure you already know, is so diverse, so colorful, and supportive. So I invite you to listen in as we meet a new quilter each week and hear their stories. You know, I love my coffee. In fact, I've got a fresh pot brewing right now. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash stitched by Susan. There for the price of one delicious coffee, you are able to make a one-time contribution or sign up for a monthly one if you so desire. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And maybe take a moment now to refill your cup as you settle back to enjoy today's interview. Ann Nemish is a classically trained artist with degrees in art and art therapy. But more importantly, she's been mastering the art of free motion quilting for over 23 years. She has extensively shown her quilts and has won many major awards in all levels of national and international quilting. Her deepest love, though, is teaching. Bethan has taught quilters all over the world to love quilting and to find their own voice of creative expression through the stitched line. Let's welcome her now. Welcome, Beth Ann to my studio. I am so looking forward to this opportunity to visit with you.
1: Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to uh, chit-chatting.
0: For sure. I mean, we're, we're both long-arm quilters, so we never seem to run out of things to talk about. In fact, you know, we're talking kind of before the show, and I have to interrupt our talk to say, let's actually start the show, right, and get going. So here we are. Um,
1: yeah, it's uh, easy to talk to a person who knows.
0: It is. It is. But before we dive, you know, into kind of what you're doing these days, I would love to know where your journey began. I know that you're trained as an artist. You know, what sort of came first and then what in the world led you into making fabric and thread your art?
1: Well, I I came by quilting um, a little bit, uh, being dragged backwards um, over the coals, uh, like my dad would say. Uh, my family has quilts in their history. Both of my Both of both sides, Um, pretty far back actually. I have quilts dating into the um, late 1800s that were made by grandmothers um, in my in my family, including um, one of my my five five generation great grandmother, who made a quilt uh, whilst traveling in a Conestoga wagon, immigrating from Tennessee to then Kansas, which was before it was a state to. Um, homestead in a dog trot, which is a, a sod house on the Kansas Prairie. Um, and and I own that quilt. Um, and then on my, my mother's side of the family, um, she did a lot of like quilt as you go projects before they were called quilt as you go. And so that was like the, the never ending scrap ba- basket, you know, because that grandma just like, oh, like, oh i made curtains we'll toss that in the scrap basket and you know <laughs> uh, all that kind of thing and so everyone in the family has basically the same quilt because it was like that never ending basket the same scrap so pile very, yeah <laughs> the same scrap pile right and the same quilt as you go so there's like like 30 variations on the same quilt and they all look more or less the same um but i hated quilting growing up um, because my mom was trying to like make me learn to sew and i was a child of the 80s i was born in 1973 and you know, if it if it wasn't, uh, you know, Madonna, uh, then I didn't want anything to do with it um, at the time. And honestly, fabric in the eighties was just not very interesting. It was all uh, calico, um, dusty rose, and colonial blue, and it looked like wallpaper. So and uh, For for a young artist, it was not very inspiring, and even then, it seemed old fashioned. And, and so I was really dismissive of it, and um, and that remained true until I went to college. And, um, uh, I was an art major and one of the random classes that I took as an elective was, um, fiber, um, fabric, um, you know, application. And, uh, I met a woman named Julia Foff, uh, no relation to the machine company, but spelled the same. And, um, she actually is in one of those, uh, giant coffee table books of like the 100 most influential quilters of the 20th century. She's in, in that book. And, um. She she was married to an archaeologist and they used to travel the world. Um, he would dig stuff up and she would do line drawings of it because you weren't allowed to take pictures when you're in like Petra and you know in some religious dig site. So she would then come back home and she would do printmaking where she would inscribe in and intaglio and just do all this printmaking stuff with the stuff that he would pick up and she would hand dye her own fabrics and do all this printmaking and she would make quilts from his archaeological digs. So that was like wow. her deal. And yeah, I even bought one of her pieces when I graduated because she was so influential to me. But what she taught me was that I didn't have to tolerate being unhappy with the commercial products that were available to me. Um, I could I could make my own, dye my own, alter my own fabric if I wanted to. And so it was that like epiphany that made mm-hmm. me say, oh, just because I think that Calico sucks doesn't mean that I can't, still make quilts, right? You're not limited to Calico. Yeah. Well, you know, if you went shopping, you kind of were back then. Um, But it it just kind of like started me thinking that I didn't have to be. Uh, But then, you know, I went to grad school and I met my husband and, you know, we we moved to Pennsylvania. And I I hadn't really been into looking at fiber arts at all. And uh, I was looking for my first job as an art therapist I have a master's in art therapy, and um, walked into a quilt store, and I was really shocked at the sea change that had happened. And, and this this is well documented in the quilt book, but it's like the old fabric industry like threw itself away and reinvented itself, um, and, and and that's when like all these gorgeous yarn dyes, and especially the boutique industry, and just like. The fabric world itself just reinvented itself, like in that period of time between when I had decided it was garbage and when I woke up in in 1997 to realizing what had happened. Um, like in that period of time, it had completely changed. and And that change was super inspiring to an artist. So I would have been like <clears throat> 21 at the time. And all of a sudden I realized just how juicy and vibrant and beautiful fabric had become, you know, since the days of of wallpaper fabric, you know, (laughs) which is like the last time I had paid attention to it. And so that was a real moment for me to realize. And I was totally bitten by the quilting bug from that point forward.
0: I honestly think, and I'm going down a rabbit trail here, but... A compliment to you, Beth Ann. I think that you've been influential too in changing people's thoughts about what can be done with fabric and on quilts. And we'll talk a little bit more later about your yarn couching. I think that you have brought a whole new aspect into the quilting world too. And that is very, very cool. But I'm curious. I'm curious now though, how does your training as an art therapist, like, are there any translations from that into what you're doing now? Do the two work hand in hand or have you kind of left that behind?
1: Um, in in some ways I've left it, um, but in other ways, um, especially in my more current things, um, I tend to bring um, a, uh, an overlapping emotional element, I suppose you could say into my decision-making of what to quilt. Um, so if, um, a good example, maybe would be, I did a temperature quilt. I started, I started doing temperature quilts in 2000. So, I mean, we have our 2020, I'm sorry. So we haven't really gotten that far into the new decade. Uh, so I'm now working on my, uh, third one currently. And, um, 2000 was the first year of the pandemic you know, there's a lot of obviously super unwelcome changes that went with that. But, you know, some long-term positives also. But setting that aside, when it came time to quilt that quilt, I had done a drunkard's path block, which is, you know, it's a pretty common block. It's mm-hmm. very easy, easy to do one every day. Uh, pretty simple little three-inch thing. Um And at the end of the year, I was, I could choose how to set it, you know. And so a temperature quilt, basically you do the high and the low of every day. It's a very colorful quilt. Um, but I chose to set it from corner to corner and create a pattern um, so that in, in like January, February, early March, it was a very normal sort of polka dot way of setting a uh, drunkard's path, you know, a very typical way of doing it. And then I started thinking about as the pandemic, like like the juggernaut of like how horrible the changes were with shutting down the economy and just absolutely crushing my, my professional life and my teaching schedule, and I lost all of my contracts and, and just what chaos that caused. And so I set the blocks, um, just all uh, – catwampus is one of my family's words – you know, it's just all crazy. And then, I, and then when the winter came, I had sort of cobbled back together some professional life again with using Zoom and teaching again and just, like, being really one of the first people that started with the very first digital – um, programs that started happening and just really trying in those super early days to like, how could I remake myself? And so Mm -hmm. I put together that pattern of, you know, like circles of, of the, the drunkard's path. And so, you know, if you look at the quilt, it's like nice polka dots on one corner and on the other corner, and then this sort of craziness in the middle Mm -hmm. that coordinates with the color of the seasons. But when I quilted it, I also tried to superimpose my emotional state, um, during those phases. And so, Maybe at the beginning, it was quilted in a much more traditional, sort of expected sort of fashion. And then as March and, you know, um, like the spring came along, it was just all just really flat, steady lines. And then and then it sort of morphed more into just a very exploratory explosion of um, trying all kinds of different patterns on top of stuff. And so I think that's part of where the art therapy comes in to sort of tie that back to your question was, um, you know, what was I feeling during each of those phases of my you know the pandemic sort of disrupting life and and you know how did how could I express that through the quilted line And most people when they look at that quilt they just like oh look look how cool it's quilted cool you know that's true um but there's a whole story there there's a whole story behind Mm -hmm. it and and I also you know did a lot of storytelling in my show quilts during my uh, you know period of my career where I was basically doing one show quilt a year as well, and those are very much what I call pictographic. You know, they're they're pictorial, they're drawn, they depict an entire ecosystem. Typically, um, you know, my my biggest of all of those quilts had uh, forty-seven living creatures and three dead ones on it. Um,
0: quilted into um, it for the most
1: part, right? Quilted it, quilted into it. You mm-hmm. know. Um, but also they had a story behind them. Um, one of my show quilts into the Westward sun uh, features a cow skull, um, with a broken wagon wheel. There's elements of native American, um, basketry and pottery, um, elements in it. Um, as well as, um, the beadwork that I've known for on my show quilts that I sort of created and innovated, which you see now in show quilts all over the place. Like I started that thing, um, made to look like jewelry um but the back story of that quilt is yes look at the pretty desert animals and that's what most people they they see and appreciate but if you actually um read about that quilt anything i've ever talked about it it talks about the um, negative impact of the westward expansion of the pioneers uh, disrespecting uh, native cultures and just like steamrolling native cultures as they pushed westward mm-hmm. and and so there's elements of death and sort of the broken dreams of the broken wagon wheel of those settlers and it's sort of a, a light uh, commentary that if perhaps there had been more respect between cultures that there would not have been so much destruction. right, um, And so that's also kind of an art therapy thing where, you know, I'm, I'm interested in having a subtle secondary um, component to stuff. So, um, and that's not true for everything, but uh, frequently there, there is some of that that goes in, there, there is some of that sort of secondary um, design that's sort of a hidden message, I suppose.
0: There's layers as there is with any art, right? there there is layers, and you do so well at telling those stories and even at um, putting them to words because I'm you know, I'm not a um, how shall I say? I'm not a skilled appreciator of art so just looking at your quilts I Mm -hmm. might be the person too that just sees the really pretty quilting and because that's where my interest lies I look at the stitches and the shapes and then I hear you read talk about it, write about it and I realize and then I go and look again and then those stories and layers start to reveal themselves to me and I so appreciate that so you mentioned earlier that you're I think true
1: of all art though
0: I, I do, I agree I agree. When you, when you know or understand a little bit about the maker or the painter or the creator, you know much yeah, more about the piece of right,
1: art. Right, right. For sure. You know, you can go to any museum painting and, and you can look at, you know, a Monet painting and just be like, oh, look at the beautiful things. Right. Um, but when you know his history of his depression and his suicidality, and then you begin to see the shadows in, in the work and uh, yeah, all, all art is that way. I do think of myself as an artist who happens to have chosen quilting as my thing.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. I do, too. But I wanted to ask a quick question. You mentioned that your, I think, great-grandmother brought a quilt um, across the West, across the plains, in a Conestoga wagon. And one of the live classes that I was privileged to take from you a few years back, you were showing, I believe, that actual quilt. Tell me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And the story was, every so often, pins were surfacing in that quilt. And don't you know, one surfaced in our class. (laughs) Did that happen more than once?
1: um you are remembering the right stories but it's actually the opposite uh grandmother um so it was my it was my mother's mother the one that did all the scrap quilts um she she was a demon for leaving pins in her quilts and and I was stabbed by one of her pins in her quilts that she gave me a quilt for my high school graduation and um and then she passed away oh I don't know um, maybe about eight or nine years after I graduated high school. Um, and it was still another eight or nine years. So okay, we're talking like 15 to 18 years after I had been given that quilt as a gift. And I had been s- freshly stabbed by a pin that had been hiding in that <laughs> quilt for 18 years.
0: And of course, they're little um, tiny but, pins. They're not like, you know, big oh, corsage yeah, yeah, pins yeah. or anything. They're teeny tiny no. and
1: they're just they're little sneaky. <laughs> they are. Yeah, she was, she was a, ter- I, I've, I've been stabbed more than once, you know, and so like she, She's been dead, I don't know a, a decade and a half at least and um and I laugh about that all the time because i I'll snuggle with that quilt, and I, I've been stabbed at least twice with that quilt over you know, the last twenty five years It's hysterical.
0: So funny. Um, I wanted to know if you would describe for our listeners some of your temperature quilts. And you were saying that you've only done this for a couple of years, but my word, you have done a couple of really, really unique ones. Tell us at least about the one that you're doing this year. So original.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, so I've I've only done three. And honestly, I think I'm in big trouble because this year is pretty cool. And it's only only the third one of the decade. So I'm really going to be struggling like the years going after this one. Um, This year, I decided to split up and do it a little bit weird. Um, I designed um, a parakeet um, block, and the wing is um, separated into seven feathers, basically, and each feather has two sides. So um, basically, if you look at a bird's wing, there's the flight feathers. There's basically two major sections, Mm -hmm. sort of the, the, the long flight feathers and then the shorter feathers, if you look at the outside of the wing. And so those are connected like a, like a log cabin. Our, your listeners will be familiar with log cabin quilting. You know, you kind yes. of do rounds of it. So they, they basically overlap like a log cabin overlaps with the idea that, that half of each sort of feather segment would be the high and half is the low. Mm-hmm. And then um, the body of the parakeet is a solid fabric. And then he's got a little colorful neck and a little colorful tail. And so I've I've assigned a role to each of those areas. Um, So each parakeet represents one week of the year. So that's different than a normal temperature quilt. So normal temperature quilts are typically arranged in months, so this is not, this is arranged just by week. Um, And then I've assigned a role so that um, the daily high and the low is represented by my choice of my graph of, of fabrics. And then the average high for the week is the body color of the bird, and then the average low of the week is the the neck and the tail of the bird. And then all the birds have the same color beak. Um, And then I've arranged them uh, corner to corner and staggered them a little bit for interest. Uh, But over time, um, you know, now that it's warming up quite a bit, now the birds are really starting to get exciting because, you know, each week they get brighter and brighter and more and more colorful i am a little bit behind um yeah my spring went super sideways on me but um oh yeah i'll get caught up eventually they take about 40 minutes a piece which if you think about it on a weekly basis is not really that's not really that long you know to do a whole week representative a whole week but if you get behind it does start to feel (laughs) a little overwhelming um and then last year's temperature quilt um I designed, uh, a feather also. Um, and it was stitch and flip. Um, and so it went really fast, which is really good for someone busy. Um, where I just had a feather that had segments that were 31 segments. And so every day you just like slapped a new piece on and then flipped it over. And then you had two sides and you put the two sides together and they matched up. So you had a high on one side and a low on the other. Wow. And then that made a, they made a giant feather mandala. So the feathers were like, um, 30 inches long. So yeah. they're, you know, pretty pretty big. And that was really fun. Um, what What is not fun is that I paper pieced that um, and I have yet to remove the papers. So I haven't quilted it because I just can't seem to bring myself to sit down to remove all the little bitty papers. Oh, I can't imagine. And then the year before that was um, the drunken path, uh, which was very basic, but super effective for, uh, you know, getting started.
0: And in some ways that allowed you I feel like to to tell more of the story with the quilting because it was not as intricate in the piecing when I look at your parakeets for example I just see the parakeets of course I don't know I mean you That's might true. you might surprise me with the quilting too anyway dear listeners I, just go and check out yeah. Bethan's um Instagram feed and you'll see these gorgeous quilts that we're talking about I know it's difficult to describe them in words and picture you know what they actually there are but they're so gorgeous
1: yeah thank you
0: so quilting now for you I mean your quilting journey has covered such an arc and maybe give us a a quick overview of that like I know that you lived in Japan I know that you have Mm -hmm. done lots of customer quilting you've become a traveling teacher and now an online teacher like describe for us some of that arc if you could like I don't know how much you can fit in five minutes but see what you can do (laughs)
1: Yeah, well, um, so I would say my quilting journey started in about, um, in earnest, or started in earnest in about uh, 1998. I I did make a couple quilts in college, but I would say I really got bit by the bug and started really churning out work in about 1998. Um, And I did what a lot of people did, which is, of course, just copied everything, bought books or patterns and just made you know quilts exactly from the or patterns at that at that time, and and began to sort of discover what really spoke to me, and then um, you know uh, I started quilting for a show um, even on a domestic sewing machine. Um, then back in the dinosaur days when you had to actually like write a postcard into the show and ask for ask them to send you a um, you know a sign up thing and you had to send a slide you had to mask off the edges of the slide with like silver tape and they would use a slide projector which. is, it sounds oh, crazy to say it like that anymore i know it sounds crazy like the kids say today like oh you were born in the in the 1900s you know like <laughs> you know <laughs> like it's like it's forever ago you know um, um, and then you know i had children and i felt very uh, i love my children deeply um, but creatively i felt quite broken when they were young because they they take their they take everything um, I don't mean they take everything, but like all of your emotional and creative energies go into the beautiful time of their lives when they're young and they're so interested in just everything about the world. And so you'd fall into bed at night, you know, exhausted every night. And it didn't leave a lot of time for, um, a lot of external creativity, aside from just being a creative parent. Um, and, and it, 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 um, it depressed me also though, because, um, I loved quilting and it, and I loved doing it. Um, so I, I forced myself during those times that instead of being creative in terms of like coming up with brilliant color schemes or freshly designed quilts like out of my head, I would just focus on like kits and and um, you know some I I would buy a kit, or even a pre cut, and and then just make it. Um, but I told myself to make it as as um, accurately as I could, and so I used those. To, times in my life where I felt not creatively inspired um, to force myself to work on my technical skills mm-hmm. rather than my creative skills until basically my creativity sort of woke back up again and and when I came back out of that period um, I had the technical ability the piecing ability to to do really excellent work should I choose to uh, mm-hmm. and I don't always choose to you know I am I am picky about when to apply that level of of perfectionism to things. But when I choose to, I can do it. Um, and that opened the door then, uh, as I became a long arm quilter, my, my youngest went to, um, finally went to school and I started a long arm business while working for others, you know, doing several hundred quilts a year, like a lot of long armors do. And I began show quilting as a long armor. And that was sort of when I truly felt, um, awake as an artist, um, because as, as a, as an illustrator, as a person who draws, um, a long arm is, uh, much is very natural to me because mm-hmm. it's like a pencil that doesn't erase very well. Um, and so it was, it was then that I was able to bring the quilting, um, perf- the quilting ideas, the illustrative ideas, and now also the, pers- the ability to be technically capable of performing, um, you know the acts of quilting magnificence that are required to show a quilt. You know, you you can't just be a decent quilter. You have to have a decent piecing that goes with the you know, pointy points and all that stuff. Yes. Um, and so then that created the, you know, the show quilts. And and my show quilts were not like anything that were in existence at the time. Um, and they, you know, they were they're very much a whole cloth. Um, they're they're pieced, but they are also. Uh, I think of them as pieced whole cloths. You know, they're, they're very big sections. Um, unlike most show quilts, which are just predominantly about the piecing, right? My quilts had excellent piecing, but they were very Amish in, uh, in their, um, presentation, very simple. And they really stood mostly on their quilting. Um, which, which always surprised me that they did as well as they did, uh, at show because, um, they're very simple from a piecing perspective. Um, but then I but, but they're uh, different, you know,
0: and that allows them to kind of stand head and shoulders above some of the others because they're unique. They're different than what they, we did they see were shows. And,
1: and, and, and so part, that part of my life, um, you know my, my show quilts did very, very well. Um, and I, and I loved doing them. I did about one a year. Um, and then, but at, um, just before the pandemic, i I lost interest um, in show quilting because it's also very stifling um you you are working on a single project for basically a whole year at a time um and and to its to its exclusion of everything else um and so i i've i'm currently really enjoying um being very explorative with my quilting with my design work and i i love the freedom of being able to just make something small and and decide that no it didn't work out and just you know move on and I think it's made me a better teacher um I I really enjoy uh teaching I taught uh at all the major shows for years and years um but now I teach online and um and that's been wonderful too because I can reach people that um could never afford to go to a show it's just not convenient to, to sometimes to go to a show and so that the online teaching has been great it's it's much healthier for my family uh, for my personal work-life balance um, as well so it's it's um Yeah, I'm I'm happy with where I'm
0: at right now. Excellent. I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about what your studio looks like at home. So many of us that have uh, crafting or creating as our business are doing it from within our home. So our space is not necessarily set up or lends itself to what we're doing. How have you created that within your home and what does that look like?
1: Yeah, well, it's evolved over time. Um, for for most of my career, it was in the basement, um, in a shared area with where my husband's office also is, um, and it didn't have any external lights. It was literally just a cave, and um, and uh, I recently moved it upstairs. Uh, I live in a ranch house, um, and when when I started needing to teach. Um, digitally and, and be on camera like I needed the visuals to be physically attractive also and to be um you know not so haphazard and you know like I don't know when it was downstairs it was like Aladdin's cave you know like it functioned but it functioned a little bit like having to like walk your walk your way between the piles of stuff where there was just nowhere for it to go mm-hmm. um but now, uh, we moved it upstairs to what is the formal living room of my ranch home, which is um, you know, separate from the areas of the house that we use the most, which would be like den and the kitchen. Uh, and the formal living room had always been, it's, it's gone through several evolutions. So when my kids were very young, we had an indoor slide and a ball pit inside. And then as the kids got older, the same room became like a TV room. Legos and like an arts and crafts table but you know my son was in college my daughter's in high school they're not using the space Um, and so we evolved that space then into being my studio so we uh, you know invested in new lighting and we uh, I invested in uh, strong humans to carry my long arm up the stairs Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I wasn't doing that again (laughs) um (laughs) You know, and and invested in uh, you know some nice like just white IKEA cabinets, so everything's like super clean and just you know visually appealing. So that it, if ever my camera operator pans around my studio, it it's physically attractive, no matter what I'm doing. Um, and I put doors on the um, big opening that you know leads to the foyer, so that I can close these glass doors, uh, mostly because it's a studio and I am. Uh, much to people's disappointment, not as much a perfectionist as they think I am. They think I'm this perfectionist because of, they've seen my quilts, but the truth is is I'm just a complete slob. I <laughs> am very much of a of a squirrel, and I will bounce from project to project, and I'll have a project that's six hours from being completed, and I will abandon it for months because I got inspired by a new project, you know. And that kind of stuff just, like, lays around until I get kicked and told that I have to clean it up because I have a class <laughs> coming up that needs to have it. I'm not capable of cleaning up after myself. Um, and so I need those doors to be able to close so that, so that everyone else in my life can walk past my studio and not feel like they're living... Um, you know with chaos are they nice uh, frosted and the formal, doors
0: so you can see nice like frosted there's pretty doors colors sort of behind light. them and it looks all gorgeous but you can't really tell that it's all in heaps and piles and that's jumbles, exactly
1: right, right. <laughs> exactly right so there's there's frosted doors at both ends of my studio it's about 15 by 19 um and um so one set of frosted doors leads to the foyer and the front door of the house and the other leads onto a covered porch and so i can open that and go outside if i want to And then I have a separate office, which is the formal dining room of the house, um, which we've never used uh, except for we we converted that to my office years and years and years ago. Uh, We never used the dining room. And so in there is where I have um, just basically my computer. Um, I keep some shipping supplies in there because I also manufacture and make my own rulers for long arming. Um, I've written six books. And so that kind of stock is kept neatly in cupboards there. And so I do all of like my my business processing from my office and these two rooms are across the foyer from each other. So they're very close next to each other. And, um, and then the, you know, all important coffee machine is, is just in the kitchen, which is right around the corner. So it works out well.
0: Lovely. There is yeah. a huge amount to be said for being able to work from home like we do. And I feel like in the crafting world, especially the business model to use a formal term has just changed so much even in the last five years from what used to be this kind of official job looking thing to where there are so many and maybe I just didn't know about them maybe they've always existed but I have gotten to meet so many people who work like this from their home that have converted areas of their home into their workspace and that frankly mm-hmm. are mastering that juggling act of um, having your work be in your home but still keeping life going on alongside it how how has that worked out for you does it work well because you have these dedicated rooms does that really help
1: um it's all i've ever really known um so i'm not sure <clears throat> i'm super good at being able to tell the difference um because i ran my long arm studio my long arm business out of my house as well um i will tell you it sometimes is hard because um like anybody who works from home and this isn't just true with crafting and um, there's no like off switch, you know, you can always true. go and check your computer and be like, Oh, I got a, I got a new order for some books. I'll just quickly slap a label on those. But every time that you, you do that, that's five minutes, six minutes, what have you. Um, and so there's the danger of that. And then there's the other component, which you didn't mention, which is for all the people who've turned, their art and their hobby also into their business and how to keep their joy alive with the hobby and the art part without letting the business parts suck the fun out of it. And that is something that I found happening to myself when I was doing a lot of travel teaching. Um, the, the push to constantly be creating a new class and creating samples for that class and packing it up and, and traveling to a, to a new show and whatever. It, it's really consumes an incredible amount of time. Um, and so teaching from home has, has uh, given me back uh, many, many of those hours um, as well. But yes, there's also the balance of am I quilting today for fun or am I quilting today for something that needs to be a business? And, and the heavy use of Instagram now has blurred those lines even more. Um, because in order to be successful with business, you now have to have this successful social footprint that, um, frankly, just doesn't come very naturally to me. Uh, and and so this, this always, this push and this churn to, you know, be putting out content. Um, otherwise you're essentially punished by the, uh, algorithmic gods, you know, if you don't constantly churn out content. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a very blurred line, um. Uh, to answer your question, and and I, it does, I think take it takes um, actively paying attention to your boundaries, um, not to become overwhelmed or um, overburdened. Yeah, but on the flip side, though, it's super nice to go and and uh, lay in a hammock on the porch with coffee. Um, during the middle of your work day so and that's it a totally is
0: to and home. I <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I live in the inland northwest which has beautiful beautiful summers and I literally do all summer my work days take that format quilt early in the morning lay on the deck in a hammock or a deck chair for a couple hours quilt late in the afternoon mm-hmm. and evening and it works beautifully yeah so I feel pretty yeah and, and
1: that's really nice um you know I take you know take breaks go do some gardening or you know if I need to yeah, I don't know, trade off a day and work on Saturday, but you know, then I can just say to myself, well, I'm blowing off Monday, you know, because I you know, put in quite a few hours on Saturday, but yeah, yeah it, I I I I tell myself that I'm allowed to quilt whenever I feel like it, but I'm only going to check email and process orders Monday through Friday. That's mm-hmm. what I tell myself. That's- and I, and I've trained my students that as well. That mm-hmm. when I interact with my students, I have these really in-depth master classes now, where I'm one to one with my students for three months. Like we're together for a long time, and they ask me questions in my Facebook group that sort of supports the class, and they um, submit uh, their own work, and I overdraw, and I'm I'm really involved at helping them mature as a free motion machine quilter. Um, but even I explain to them what my boundaries are, and that <laughs> is like you can submit whenever you feel like it, but don't expect a response from me. Except for Monday through Friday during business hours of the East Coast, you know. Um, so that's, I, I do try to set those boundaries with anybody I work with now. And, and, and they, I've never had anybody have a problem with it.
0: Right. That, that's wisdom to set the boundaries, but I feel like the same thing is true. Quilters are, they're people too, and they understand that you have lives too. And they're usually very understanding of that sort of thing. So that's, that's great.
1: Right. And our, and our hours tend to be opposite each other if you think about it, because most people have a job or a career that's not quilting. And when they're quilting, it's in their free time. So that tends to be in the evenings or on the weekends. And so then they're submitting their questions then. But that is my free time. And so, you know, it it takes a little bit of a dance to make sure that everybody understands that I will answer their questions, Um, but it's not fair to ask me a question during my Sunday supper and expect that I'm going to answer it.
0: True. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I wanted to explore just a little bit. We touched on it just briefly earlier. In the last few years, you have dived so deeply into making couched yarn projects. And again, this is something brand new that you've brought into the creative and quilting world Um my word. I, I just don't even have adjectives to describe it. Talk about some of the projects you've done. And I know that we'll link to you have an Instagram feed that's dedicated to that particular art. But talk about a few of the projects I do. you've done.
1: Um, so I guess to correct you a little bit, I just don't want to have your listeners think that I created yarn couching. Um, uh, definitely yarn couching has been around for a really long time. Free True. motion machine yarn couching. Um, has been around for a while. You Helen have just elevated it like
0: crazy and shown us yeah. the possibilities. So there, there's
1: definitely some very s- well-established quilters, not who are not me, okay. who have who have innovated and they've worked with machine companies to create feet, yarn, free-motion yarn couching feet, and they've pushed these machine companies to make these feet available. And and those people deserve the credit for that kind of thing. Um, I will say that for the most part before I started doing what I'm doing, yarn couching looked to, to me like um, replacing the free motion machine quilted line with yarn, which is very cool. It's just a fluffy version of a free motion machine quilting.
0: But quite or number two dimensional.
1: Yeah. You know, if we do loops and swirls with free yeah. motion machine quilting, they're just doing it with yarn and and it looks really cool. And it's, you know, very textural, very nice. Um, and number two is um, treating uh yarn couching basically like a coloring book you know you you have a design you color in the design right and and that also looks very interesting, but neither of those is what I'm doing um I am actually painting with the with the yarn and i'm I'm massaging the colors together and I'm overlapping the colors and uh tearing apart the yarn and and you know doing incredibly fine detail and and I spend a great deal of time thinking about the layers and the value of the colors because um, you can't render, um, let's say, for example, a white animal in white yarn. That's, that's it, it'll all just look like a white a blob. Um, so you, I have spend a great deal of time thinking about how far can I push the color value of um, of my projects to be able to render them in. A semi three-dimensional way and this again comes from being an artist i think a painter and and thinking about how to 3d model on a 2d surface Mm -hmm. Um, and so this requires a vast collection of of values of yarn, uh, much to the envy of all of my yarning friends uh i so I, i i spend a great deal of time thinking about uh how to render a 3d image on a 2d surface which is very painting approach to things, um, and how to model, uh, 3d form. So that's a super classic, um, art process to do where you're modeling a, a cube or a sphere or a cone as opposed to a circle or a square or a triangle to make them appear three-dimensional. And that requires a huge collection of values of yarn, um, in single skeins, um, and, uh, so I have a, I have a huge tower of, of yarn that I've collected to do that. Um, you know, and also like a certain type of yarn that performs well and sort of blends away. I don't really like my projects to have a very twisted yarn appearance. Um, so the kind of yarn you would use to knit your socks, which is going to hold up really well against the weight of your body inside your shoe is not the kind of yarn that I'm using. Um, to to do my art projects my kind of yarn that i would choose is actually pretty fragile because it it's one ply which is not great for holding up to sweaters uh, long term in any case uh my finished products um are i don't want to say that they're realistic but they are they are very realistic they're not Mm -hmm. as obviously realistic they're not as realistic as as they could be um, because it's still yarn but they are a, a very close impressionism version of whatever it is that I'm creating uh, and so that that makes them I think stand out very far from what other people are doing with yarn catching right now um, I love doing them in uh, I've done them on quilts uh wall quilts mostly I don't really feel like they would hold up super well to a functional quilt um they're a little a little too fragile for that
0: and um, it must get quite but, heavy um, too wall
1: quilts yes right? you know it would be like attaching a sweater to your corner of your yeah. quilt. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, uh, yeah. wall quilts, um, I've I've upholstered uh, with them um, and created upholstered things, um, which is super cool. And people ask me, can you sit on it? And like, yes. And it'll hold up just as well as when you sit on the hem of your sweater. Like, it does hold up. Now, would you... Um, over time, destroy it. If it was your favorite sweater and you sat on it every day, yes. But you know, will it hold up to light use? Also, yes. Um, And um, I also do the yarn couching uh, kind of freestanding. I use tool and wash away stabilizer. So I I draw my pattern on wash away stabilizer. I layer it with tool. And if I'm working on a sit down machine, I would put that in a hoop. Um, Or if I'm working on my long arm, I would Um, suspend yard of tool on the long arm between the rails um, and create a freestanding piece. If you just think of that as being a piece of applique or a patch, Uh, it's very one-to-one with um, an embroidered embroidery, you know, an Mm -hmm. embroidered patch. Um, So, you know, you wash away the stabilizer, just like you would with embroidery, you trim away the tool and now you have a floppy freestanding thing that you can apply And I've applied that to quilts, but uh, recently I I really think it's a lot of fun to apply it to my coats. And so I have, I don't know if you know at this point, 15 or 18 um, jackets that I've thrift. Um, I've never spent more than about 15 bucks on a jacket. I I find these things at thrift stores and, um, you know, and create uh, wearable art. Um, And it's a lot of fun to wear. Um, I, I particularly, if I'm in a bad mood, if I'm in a bad peopling mood, I will definitely wear my three-dimensional snake jacket and, um, nobody bugs me. It's great.
0: <laughs> One of these days you'll have a runway show just with your, just with your coats. They are so amazing. <laughs> so amazing.
1: Well, they're, they're, they're kind of, um, they're very fun to wear at the right thing. Like they're super fun to wear at, um at quilt shows, you know, like where people understand what, what they're all about. Um, uh, it, it takes kind of the right, the right place. Otherwise people are like, what are you like, <laughs> what kind of weirdness is this? Um, but yeah, I, I just make them because I think they're fun.
0: You mentioned that you are now teaching online, and I know you've got some upcoming classes that are launching soon, and that's important because of your one to one interaction with your students. It's important to know when that starts. So, tell us a bit about what's coming next.
1: Yes. So, what's coming next and is available for sale now is a free motion feather fiesta, which is a 20 plus hour of just the recorded instruction um, class that takes place over three and a half months. Um, And uh, the bulk of the class takes part in a dedicated uh, Facebook group. Although I do participate sort of offline with those who just hate Facebook, but for the most part, people use Facebook and they submit their work to me for one-to-one evaluation and critique. And what I do is I overdraw with them until they are perfecting uh, feathers and it ranges all the way from multiple styles of heirloom feathers all the way through uh, spineless feathers, fancy feathers, creating, improvising, and uh, originating um, how to be creative with their own style of feathers. Um, and then my own personal sort of feather backfill. Uh, so you, it's the deepest dive into feathers that basically mm-hmm. exists. Um, it's a very exciting class. Um, the instructional part just 20 hours, but the actual interaction is much more like a 40 or 50 hour um, sort of involvement with me over the course of over the three and a half months. And it's it's my most favorite class to teach because um, because of just how incredibly far the beginning and ending work of my students is unbelievable. They they do like a little side by side at the end. And it's it's shocking every time um, for those who actually practice. It's amazing what how far they come. Mm
0: hmm. Okay. Well, we will be sure to, I will be sure to put a link in the show notes for that class for anyone that's interested in it. And That'd be great. Yeah. If they're, if they're listening reasonably close to the recording, they can nip right over and purchase it. Otherwise there's information there about it and when you will be serving it up again.
1: Great. There will be. And there's always a little, um, you know, uh, if you miss it, you can sign up for a little news link when it comes around again.
0: Perfect. Good to know. Well, gosh, we could honestly go on forever. I know we could, but we've got to draw this to a close. So before we go, do you have a little gem that you'd like to leave with our listeners can be about life or creativity or humor or kids, whatever you like, little gem,
1: (laughs) a little gem, um, maybe a quilting life lesson. Um, so, uh, as, as a person who came from the show quilt world, um, i've I've learned over time that uh, chasing external rewards like quilt shows um, can uh, can be very dissatisfying um, and that it's very easy to fall into the trap of constantly revising your work for the external goal in this sample would be a quilt show, but um, it could be other things and always asking yourself, what are these other people going to like the best? And making a decision for your art based on what you think other people's approval is going to be, like what's going to maximize other people's approval. And um, those external rewards, uh, there's not very many of them, and they're very temporary. And the times in my life with my own personal quilting where I have followed that rabbit for too far, those quilts I am the least in love with,
0: Interesting. and I am
1: the most, and I'm the most dismissive of. And the ones where I have been willing to ignore that noise and and do the thing that makes me happy have been the ones that have uh, lasted the longest in terms of my personal satisfaction and and feeling like I am most personally invested in them, um, and, and long-term the happiest with. So, so my art advice is to not worry so much about the approval of, um, other people of the Instagram algorithm, the, Mm -hmm. like whatever it is, um, and that you will find more happiness and contentment asking yourself what, what is making you the happiest? And what where is your personal inspiration leading you? And then letting the world find that part. You know, so instead of you folding yourself into what you think the world wants from you, do the thing that you want to do and then let the right people find you.
0: That's and a great description. And then those people
1: those people are the people that are really going to be um, there for you and to lift you up Um, the ones that that are there for you for your own true expressions
0: i so agree such good advice i can't add to it because you've said it so well but thank you so very much for spending this time with me it has been a true pleasure to chat with you
1: awesome well thank you so much for having me on
0: Thank you for tuning into the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review on the listening app of your choice? And please, please do share this episode with your friends that you think would enjoy it. I'd love to hear from listeners who'd like to nominate a crafter with a story to tell. If you know such a person, or you are one, email me at info at com. So until next time, may your sorrows be patched and your joys be quilted.